This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, our media were again in emergency mode for Cyclone Gabriel, offering hours of extra coverage on air, online and in print, and even reporting the basics in stricken areas that didn't have the basics of power, communications or even homes of their own for reporters in some cases. We'll hear from a newspaper editor who found himself powerless to publish, literally, before recovering to put out free emergency editions for his region, which was cut in two and cut off from the rest of the country, and his reporters cut off from each other. In the event of a big news event, the phones ring hot, and (laughs) my phone wasn't ringing at all, you know. (laughs) We'll talk to one former editor and one current one about what the country's media and the powers that be can take away from all this for the future. When the technology doesn't work, you're stuffed. And we begin by looking at how many media helped to get us prepped by opening our eyes to the danger on the way in advance of the cyclone, while others insisted there might not be much to see. I'm turning the radio off, just like I did with Kerry this morning. Once again, another media beat-up. Overreaction, underreaction. Doesn't matter what the action is taken, the media will spin it to get the best reaction for talkback, and I'm tired of it. That was Andrew Dickens on News Talk ZB last Monday lunchtime, reading out a text from a listener who thought that the media were overcooking Cyclone Gabriel, whose effects were just getting going on land. And Andrew Dickens let that guy know what he thought. All we've done is repeat exactly what the local authorities say, exactly what central government has said. We've just conveyed the information that we've been asked as the media to convey. We are the media in between the authorities and you. There has been no beat up by the media purely to get ratings. We are purely reporting what is being said and being done. And fair enough too, in what ended up being a nationwide state of emergency, only the third one ever declared, alongside the COVID crisis and the Christchurch quakes so far this millennium, and a crisis that also claimed lives, including those of rescuers. And not for the first time in recent years, our main national media outlets aired hours of non-stop coverage with few flat spots and masses of live online reporting round the clock too, giving a comprehensive picture and pictures of what was going on, where it was getting worse, and then better, and where communications blackouts and remoteness made it impossible to say. So with Cyclone Gabriel still to do its worst last Monday lunchtime, Andrew Dickens insisted people did need to hear about it to prepare for it. If you want to stop listening, fine, go ahead and do what you want and blunder into a floodwater if you want. But what should we do? Just start censoring it? Not tell you what the local government wants? Not tell you what the central government has said? Well, of course not, though, as Andrew Dickens was well aware, these days, reactions like those come from a hefty hinterland of suspicion and even paranoia about the media and its motivations. A lot of media over COVID got into a lot of trouble because all they did was repeat exactly what the Prime Minister said, as though everyone expected the media to actually make some sort of judgment call. What happens if, in fact, Brett, you happen to be in a place where you were affected and that hearing the report on the radio saved you. Would you then call it media BS? Good luck to Brett and others waging a culture war not just against the media, but a cyclone. And shortly after that, the Civil Defence Minister, Kieran McAnulty, praised the media for forewarning us all. Keep listening to the radio. You, You guys are doing a great job in updating people and it's very much appreciated. And others had similar praise for the media too, which had been criticised, remember, during Auckland's last emergency, the floods, just two weeks earlier. Auckland's Deputy Mayor Desley Simpson was also eager to guard against complacency about what was still to come. Today, all right, not this morning, what you're looking out at mm. the window, it's raining and there's, you know, it's not nothing. actually we not so much wind. We ain't seen nothing yet. 
this is this isn't it. But already copping it at that point were Northland and Coromandel. On Monday morning's AM show, reporter Ashley Yates had to hand back to the studio from Fethianga because the wind was just so strong she couldn't be heard above it. And then ITM fishing show host Matt Watson showed his Bay of Islands home getting hammered. Pretty windy. And if Matt Watson's property looked familiar on the screen, that's because TV3 screened an entire series called The Kiwi Dream, all about Matt building his dream house by the sea. And because this is a Kiwi dream, we want to get amongst it. So how about your very own surf beach with perfect waves? And under the water, let's have some fresh fish to catch. Might as well make them right in front of the house. And we might as well make them big fish right on the doorstep. Right now, those fish could be in his house, not just at the doorstep, prompting this question from the AM show's host, Ryan Bridge, on Monday. But looking at a storm like this, do you think, oh, we should have gone up the hill a bit more? (laughs) No, I mean, hey, we're um, actually, like, where I'm sitting now in the the living room is actually seven metres above um, sea level. So um, if it gets to me um, here, mate, we've got bigger problems, right? Um, And um, maybe I was a bit ambitious um, having a cricket wicket down there. (laughs) Have you seen? Well, maybe. And after Gabrielle, the issue of where we build houses has already been raised in the media and will be talked about much more in the days and weeks to come. Now, after the declaration of a national state of emergency later on Monday and news of the first fatalities, TV3 went into rolling non-stop coverage like this. We will get through this together. We'll be with you live on air this morning through until 11 o'clock. We'll have more coverage on three throughout the day. Other media too launched into non-stop coverage, stretching their newsrooms to the limit. But even in such extraordinary circumstances, some listeners were scrutinising presenters' responses to the eye-opening eyewitness accounts they were hearing. There you go. This thing is really just kicking off. Uh, it is just coming up to 8 o'clock. At 7.50, the male announcer blasphemed, says the text. That's you, Corin, saying Jesus on air. I don't think he was really invoking God's help, and it is offensive to Christians. I, don't I was in the room, David, and he said, Jesus which seems acceptable for some reason. It was morning report last Monday, and anyone alarmed by G's would have struggled 24 hours later when Tolaga Bay farmer Bridget Parker told Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan about yet another inundation at her place with added forestry slash. This is what New Zealand doesn't understand. It's one thing to get a cyclone and get water. It's another when the water comes with bloody pine trees attached to it. Look, I, I feel your passion and your anger because this has just gone on for so long, Bridget. So, I, I, I mean, I, I don't have words for you, but I hear your words. Well, we all did, and Bridget had a couple more F-bombs for which she apologised for dropping. But there was really no need. It was compelling and honest stuff from a region in which RNZ's reporter Kate Green was soon after that using the only means of communicating that worked, a satellite phone. You can't even call 111. Um, everything's down. Uh, the mayor, Rehetzelt, um she phrased it nicely. She said, everything that can break is broken. Now, Gisborne is a city and Tairawhiti, a region not well covered at the best of times by our national media, who don't have staff or outlets there. And it's a bitter irony that in the worst of times, it was so hard to get the word out, leaving media resorting to old school forms, as Wednesday's 8am news on RNZ National made plain. The Gisborne Mayor says newspapers will be delivered to all residents in Gisborne today with an urgent conserve water notice. Internet is down in Tidafiti. 
Mariette Stoltz says the region only has enough water to last a day. Teams from Fire and Emergency, as well as from the council and MPI, will be walking the streets today. So people, please watch out. Read your Gisman Herald. We have information in there. And where phones and internet were all down, radio was the only game in town. And even broadcasters with a boosted audience on old-fashioned but robust AM transmission were going to great lengths to ensure that they stayed on air. Here's Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB on Wednesday. And we need to get the generator going. To get the generator going, we need diesel. You can't get diesel. There's no power to pump it. So if you're on a farm or something like that and you've got diesel spare, we'll buy it, obviously, but if you've got diesel spare... Um, then we're interested. And later that same day, Today FM's afternoon hosts were frustrated by what they could relay over the radio. That government website is a waste of time. Basically, no internet in Hawke's Bay. It's in and out, like being on dial-up. They need to hit the radio stations to give out information. Y- yeah, well, we are a radio station, but <laughs> we obviously we need it. to know what the information <laughs> is. I want to know exactly yeah. where... They haven't got all they've got is a transistor radio. Yeah. Actually provide a means for these people who need the information to damn well get it. On Wednesday, RNZ also switched its focus to areas that were cut off or without power, or both, and depending on the radio. And knowing that those who could get online might only have the bandwidth for the basics, RNZ's live online updates went text-only, with news they could use and download as easily as possible. But some of those in those same circumstances were the reporters themselves, such as RNZ's Anusha Bradley, normally in Tawanga, east of Hastings, but evacuated because of scenes seen in her local paper. Just looking at the picture on Hawke's Bay today, an absolute yeah. uh, shocking picture of, a, of a, a manhole cover just being blown off and huge, yeah, huge spout <laughs> yeah. of dirty brown water. I mean, this yeah, just so looks... I mean, that's right outside my house. So I think our garage has gone. Um, we, we were about sort of three steps up into our first floor, so we're hoping that it doesn't reach the floor level. But, you know, if it keeps rising, it possibly will. And the same day, Chris Hyde, the editor of Hawke's Bay Today, penned his own vivid vignette of communication stalling and then crashing and himself ending up literally powerless. You know, I spent the first day literally not being able to talk to anyone, really. <laughs> I was in a black hole. It was just a infuriating experience and a humbling experience to know some information but not know much, but even the information that you do know you can't tell people. In the event of a big news event, the phones ring hot, you know, and this was the, the biggest news event that Hawke's Bay has had, I would say, since, since the major earthquake, and <laughs> my phone wasn't ringing at all, you know. <laughs> I spent those two hours with my, my two young girls, and then I, I just kind of realised that like, I, I actually have to and try to find some way to contact the outside world. So d- did you feel you were getting the information that was essential? Uh, as soon as I can, I am going out and buying a transistor radio, Colin. Um, yep, <laughs> I didn't have one at home. Oh, you know? Unfortunately. Um, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was horrific. You know, I was getting reports from photographers who were on the ground outside the Tutaikuru River. This thing's going to go, you know. Um, this thing's going to breach. And then the power cut. So I was about to write a Facebook post saying a, a photographer says that the water is rising right near to the top. I, I couldn't write it. <laughs> I couldn't tell them, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's one of those things. I I hope it never happens again. I'm in awe of um, what my journalists are going through and, and are handling. 
Hastings team here that are working in really trying circumstances, but at least most of them are able to go home and have power. And do you know what is the state of like your building, your newsroom? Is is that going to be something you can reoccupy? Or are you looking at working in isolation from each other for, for a time yet? It's looking more and more likely that we'll be able to be reconnected with each other in the next few days at least. But yeah, I'd love to see them and give them a hug or, um, you know, <laughs> see what they, they're going through over there. Um, basically, I mean, our newsrooms are operating. The first day after the cyclone, um, Napier was actually in the best position to be, really, because Hastings, we couldn't even get inside because there's no ability to even open the doors when there's no power, and we had no power in Hastings. Um, Napier runs on a generator. Um, it, it has a, a radio office as well as a, um, a print operation there, so um, because of that, the civil defence needs of it are greater, so we have a generator there. But once Hastings got communication, power bank is definitely the easier of the two cities to operate in. Well, a few hours ago, you put out on social media a, a bit of a slightly despairing notice saying um, that the Napier-Hastings road was closed again and it was shaping up as a human disaster. You put it, then a few hours later, the, the road's open again, which is great. I've just been listening to News Talk ZB tonight. Uh, this is Thursday as we're recording this. Uh, people phoning the night's programme with all sorts of details about where you can fill an LPG tank in the region, which uh, petrol stations are open. Uh, a truck driver just talked about driving um, LPG from, I think, Havelock to Bayview. Which, which way are most cars going? Um, most cars seem to be going to Hastings, believe it or not, from Napier. I don't know why. For fuel, um, Gav- for fuel Gavin? Yes, probably. I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does that give you a sense of that connection that you talked about? Yeah, uh, it's hard to explain just how important those bridges are for Napier. A city of 60,000 people that has no power. Um, even Christchurch earthquake, I was down there for that. We, as a city, we were, we were ruined, but I, you know, half of the city had power. So the fact that you're part of the NZME empire, has that helped as well? Resources from outside uh, the immediate area um, being able to, to, to help out? Getting reporters, photographers, um, so much support from the NZME team. They've been fantastic this week. Um, one thing I would say, I have, I'm in absolute awe of any newspaper editor who is able to put out a paper the day after a natural disaster. I'm four five months into this role, my first, first newspaper editor role, and I... I just can't fathom how they were able to do that. But I remember some journalists who lived through that and reported it uh, for the press in particular, uh, they ended up feeling after a couple of years that everything was becoming a a kind of one-issue story. They were writing so much about quake recovery. Are you maybe having a a feeling that that will be similar now for Hawke's Bay? I have read a lot about the mental aftermath of the Christchurch earthquake. Um, and I do know that, that my team needs as much support as we can give them. That is that is part of my role. And if we don't look after that, then we will we will have people that leave. And I, I don't want these guys to leave because they are they are a fantastic team. But you know, we we this is a unique situation as well. Um, we, we don't know um, what the effects of that will be. It will be significant. Yeah, I, I heard just now we might have a. a um, photographer turning up and, and camping out in a tent <laughs> yeah. so that they can take some photos because uh, there's no accommodation in those things. Well, so yeah. just, just finally then, Chris, for both yourself and maybe other 
regional news teams and, and editors in your position and other parts of the country that have been stricken, what would help? What is there that, that you could use both from within the media industry and uh, just from the, the general communities that you serve? Um, just, just keep supporting local news is what I'd say. Keep, keep resourcing it. Keep realising that it matters because in moments like this it really does matter. We're not alone right now um, in, in our struggles. Um, I know that Northern Advocate didn't, went over to publish um, for a couple of days as well. Affects a significant. I haven't had a chance to read about much of what's going on outside the region, but I, I, I'm aware that you know we are we are far from the only region that is hurting right now. That time without communications, Chris Hyde later wrote, meant time to reflect on the disaster they'd really rather be reporting, but there will be time to reflect properly and learn from all this after it was over, he said. But some of the media were already doing so this past week. Earlier on, we heard News Talk ZB's Andrew Dickens pushing back at listeners telling him earlier in the week that the media were making too much of a drama out of the incoming cyclone, but he was also aware that his fellow talk radio hosts were turning some people off. A lot of media over COVID got into a lot of trouble because all they did was repeat exactly what the Prime Minister said, as though everyone expected the media to actually make some sort of judgment call. No, that's for the opinion writers. That's for the Mike Hoskins and Kate Hawkesbury's and me in this world to have our say and other experts who we then report on what they had to say. But try and get the media's role in, in perspective. Though with strident daily opinions from that handful of radio hosts aired day after day on the same network, you really can't blame some of the listeners for wondering about that line between those and news they can really use, especially in a crisis and especially on a network that was promoting its news this week like this. Your official civil defence station, live from the Newstalk ZB News Centre. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, while the wind and the water were rising and claiming lives in parts of the north, the entire country was hearing News Talk's hosts objecting to closing schools for a couple of days. And, you know, I, I just have the sense that maybe we need to take a bit of a breath in the media with our hyperbole and the motive language around it because I'm not sure if it's really uh, particularly helpful in some of the media coverage and the metaphors that are used. And, of course, you know that, you know, media, we also out to tell a story and things like that. But I'm being polite because privately I just look at some of the coverage and go, well, this is just getting ridiculous. That's News Talk ZB's Tim Beveridge admonishing the media for being what he saw as a bit OTT about the threat posed by Cyclone Gabrielle last Sunday afternoon. Just hours after he called the cyclone overblown, News Hub at 6's Karen Rutherford was barely audible over a blustering gale as she crossed live to presenter Laura Tupo from the Coromandel. And with slips predicted on that road in the coming days, emergency services particularly are concerned that they may not get out by road and they're certainly not going to get out by air, Laura. Karen Rutherford live from Whangamata, Tēnākwe. News Talk's trivialising commentary on Cyclone Gabrielle persisted, even as the storm's destructive reality swam into focus. On Monday, early morning host Kate Hawksby decried what she saw as hysteria from authorities over the cyclone. Here she is reading out some listener feedback. Kate, the whole thing's been blown out of all proportion. I have sympathy with that because I feel a wee bit the same way, but I hesitate to just add a but there. Uh, it may well be coming in later on this afternoon. If it doesn't, then they have really 
done their chips on these warnings. I mean, one of the headlines I saw in News Hub was, there will be destruction. That was the headline. If you've ever seen anything more anxiety-inducing in your life, I don't know. So, you know, they seem convinced it's coming our way and it's going to happen, so we shall see. Later in the show, her husband, Mike Hosking, came on to add his own derision to the mix. So what we've done is whip ourselves into this extraordinary frenzy. I'm listening to your mate Chris from the Met Service. He's now talking about 100k winds as being like a, a hurricane. Well, he described it as ferocious. Anyone, anyone who lives in Wellington has lived in Wellington. 100k's is a breezy day. You've still got an outdoor <laughs> table at the cafe. I mean, what we've done is we've got ourselves into this mental state now where anything is... It, I'm we reading, panic. I'm but reading, I also think we're in a state now where we, we, we want to be told what to do all the time. I and we almost enjoy it. It's like, oh, hung, oh, hung Hunker down, don't go to school, don't go to work. It's like we almost enjoy the panic. The pair did go on to concede the possibility of some damage in coastal areas. Around the same time as Hawksby and Hosking were guffawing at the so-called hysterical reaction to the cyclone and scoffing at the media for telling people it would cause destruction, TVNZ Breakfast's newsreader Chris Chang was informing people of the damage it had already done. Many homes are without power. Transportation across Auckland has been limited and many schools have opted to close. Over on News Talk ZB, the hosts continued to poo-poo the cyclone's impact as the day wore on. On her mid-morning slot, Kerry Woodham lambasted Auckland schools for deciding to close for the day. With Cyclone Gabrielle, nothing has happened really yet. I get why emergency services want this to happen. It means if something happens... Kids won't be stranded at school. It means if something happens, the roads are clear for emergency responders to get where they're needed. But what message does this send to our children? Yet again, their education must be sacrificed for the greater good. And her talkback caller couldn't agree more. As if it's not bad enough, the morons plead it's for the health and safety of our little puppets. What are they going to do next, say, for the counselling available? Because we know, like COVID, your children will be very anxious about all the water. They would have seen the puddles the other day and slipped on their BMXs while they're wagging smaller down the skate path, for Christ's sake. Have a nice day. Thank you, Tim. Here's what Woodham told a caller complaining his daughter's school was closed on Monday and Tuesday in Napier. I was madly refreshing that stupid Cyclone app all over the weekend. Now I thought, what is the point of doing this? Why? Yeah, well, it's going it's to happen, it's going to happen. Exactly. exactly. I don't need but, to but, know. Yeah. Despite Woodham's pronouncement that nothing has happened, the headlines on TVNZ's midday bulletin immediately after her show ended were quite decisive in saying things were in fact happening. Rain is forecast to set in in Northland and the East Coast early this afternoon and Auckland this evening. Around 58,000 people are without power across the top of the North Island. Thousands of those homes without power were in Woodham's hometown Auckland, with the majority north of Oriwa. The situation was worse in Northland. Nicole Bremner crossed live to the show, standing in front of a growing expanse of flood water. It's very wet, it's very cold, people are being asked to stay off the roads. We know there's a lot of problems with communication, we're having trouble getting people on the phones. We know that one of the big cell phone towers is out and of course there is uh, electricity uh, cuts to homes too. Unfortunately, some couldn't watch that informative, responsible reporting from Bremner and the TVNZ team. 
People in homes that had lost power could only get the radio, and some were relying on News Talk ZB for information. One of Media Watch's listeners, who asked to be named only as Jim, said he could only pick up the talk station signal at his home in Northland. He was alarmed to hear its hosts were more focused on Auckland school closures than the escalating flooding, power outages and dangerous winds people were experiencing in his area. That obsession with schools persisted into the following day, even as New Zealand woke up to the wreckage left by Gabrielle overnight. Here's Hawksby's editorial early on Tuesday morning. Well, the rain's hitting Auckland City now, but yesterday between 8.30 and 3pm when there was hardly any rain or wind, uh, I wondered why kids in all the unaffected areas couldn't have been at school. Yesterday turned out to be an average rainy day. Yes, I get it. Precautions. 20 minutes later, TVNZ's breakfast crossed to reporter Tessa Parker, who delivered the news that landslides had destroyed homes and buried people in Mudawai. Residents have received their second emergency alert of the morning. Residents on the, on the right side of the Motutara Road have been told to evacuate to the surf club. That is because there is an increased risk of landslides. Fire and emergency has already told us that two houses have collapsed here in this coastal suburb this morning and we understand that people are currently trapped. Both of those trapped people, volunteer firefighters Dave Van Zwanenberg and Craig Stevens, died. Meanwhile on her News Talk ZB show, Kerry Woodham relitigated her earlier point about school closures. Where areas are affected, they can make their own decisions and where areas are not affected, they too can make their own. Uh, so you clearly disagree and that's absolutely fine. But I just don't believe all of Auckland should be shut down um, because some suburbs have been terribly affected and some have not, and that is the very nature of, of storms. That is the nature of storms, and unless Woodham is sitting on a method to perfectly predict their path, timing and intensity, then there's an argument that it's better to be safe than sorry. Our news organisations likely saved lives over the last few days by taking that fact into consideration and informing and warning people about what turned out to be the most destructive cyclone in a century. In its aftermath, they've navigated technical challenges to tell the stories of those hit hardest by the disaster. The Gisborne Herald put out a paper to every house in the city despite not having power in its building. 22,000 homes will receive a copy of this newspaper tonight, free of charge, to bring the district up to date with what exactly has happened with Cyclone Gabriel and how the recovery is going. I'm proud to be working at this newspaper today. I'm Murray Robertson for the Gisborne Herald. As we heard earlier, News Talk's NZME stablemate Hawke's Bay today overcame similar difficulties to put out free editions of its own, and News Talk ZB itself scrambled to broadcast civil defence information and news updates in Hawke's Bay on 96.7 FM after its regular FM and AM frequencies were knocked off air. They all provided a vital public service. But in a storm that killed people and washed away homes, some front-rank hosts and key time slots at our most popular national talk radio network obsessed about a missed day of school. Education is a wonderful thing, but perhaps it's not our students who most need to sit down and take on board some information from people better informed than they are.
Hayden Donnell there looking at the contrarian conclusions contradicting civil defence information and indeed other media reporting on News Talk ZB this week after Cyclone Gabriel struck. Among those who reckoned that the media served us well in a crisis this past week was one who had criticised them for falling short during Auckland's floods a fortnight ago, former Herald editor Gavin Ellis. Back then, he said social media and online outlets trumped traditional news media in conveying the scale and the scope of the flooding, which hit with little warning in and around Auckland. But in his weekly column, Nightly Views, that's nightly with a K, the veteran critic said the opposite was true this past week. Under the headline, Thank God for News Media in a Storm, Gavin Ellis said he couldn't get a clear picture of what was happening without mainstream media output, but that was in the early part of this past week with much more to come. So what was it that made the difference and what should editors and those who run and fund our media learn from this past week? Those two episodes were chalk and cheese. Coverage of uh, Cyclone Gabriel by all media, I think, was, was excellent. Information that was conveyed to the public gave a very, very good picture of just what we were confronting, both in the lead-up, you know, warning people about what was to come, although that wasn't universal. By and large, the, the, the media saw what was coming, told people what was coming, and then took them through it and into the aftermath, and what an aftermath it's been. Well, Kevin, what in your mind made the crucial difference? Was it merely the fact that we had a couple of days of uh, clear meteorological warnings and evidence that something enormous was coming, which, which wasn't quite the case with the, the deluge in Auckland? I think there was a realisation early on that we were confronting something uh, immense magnitude. In circumstances like this, as I, I pointed out in, in my, my column this week, they have the ability to draw together multiple strands of information and present it coherently where official site, you know, if you go to uh, to some of them, you get led from link to link to link to link to link. It's very difficult. But even more pressing, of course, is if you haven't got electricity, you haven't got those online links anyway. And that was when I think radio certainly really came into its own, but also print. Hawke's Bay today putting out a special edition which was crammed with information. Chris Hyde and his team at Hawke's Bay today did a great job on that, that in a, in a crisis like this, news media is absolutely indispensable. But it raised in my mind, you know, the, the broader issue, we, we're looking at organisations like the BBC and the ABC talking about um, a fully digital future and moving away from linear broadcasting. And it made me think, well, what happens to radio in those circumstances where if you haven't got power, um, are you still able to to access radio in the way that you can with a, you know, an, an old steam transistor radio now? It doesn't matter whether you're sitting on your rooftop surrounded by water, you can still have a radio on. Deliberations about the future of media, and I don't limit it to state-owned media, Colin. I think that we need to have a broader conversation about the future of media in this this country. And I think that the requirements in times of urgency uh, need to be looked at quite widely. People are already, and some media are already, raising these issues of managed retreat and overall the bigger picture of climate change and you know whether responses need to be accelerated in that sense. If you were in charge of a media outlet now, would you be thinking, hang on, 
it's a bit too soon for that sort of stuff, you know, just days after uh, when there's still so much to be uh, conquered and put right in the, in the short term. Uh, or, or is it actually a good time to start thinking about those things in the media? We need to depoliticise this uh, issue for the next few days at, at the very least. Uh, let's get over the, uh, the need to rescue people, see people safe, uh, housed and so on. Um, politics can get in the way of things. You know, we've already seen a bit of it, um, you know, with David Seymour saying that Parliament should be reconvened to hold the government to account. Well, that will happen. It doesn't need to happen this week. Even commentators, you know, we've seen it on commercial radio, bringing the politics back into it. Well, you mentioned the commercial radio, and, and we've had some feedback from listeners who are uh, irritated, um, annoyed sometimes by, you know, hearing um, the opinion-heavy hosts on the News Talk ZB network. You live in Auckland City, uh, where those broadcasters are also based, where the weather apparently wasn't uh, so bad as it was in other parts of the, of the north, uh, yet people who were in those parts of the country were hearing those people talking about uh, the uh, the conditions as if nothing too bad was really happening. And, for example, they couldn't fathom why schools would be closed for a couple of days and that this was overreach and panic and so on. Does that sort of stuff matter to you? Or if you're tuning into that station, you know that contrarian hosts is part of the mix, part of the engagement, and really it's no big deal? In normal times, they can thrive on contrarianism if they wish. But in times of crisis, they have a responsibility to concentrate on clear, concise, comprehensive information, their commercial interests. And to switch that culture off may be very difficult for them, but I think they've got to try. When I listen to uh, other other programs and uh, watched television and read newspapers, there were some element of the, the political process covered in them. By and large, they concentrated very, very much on what is happening to people, what do they need, how can they be helped to recover. And I think that those are the imperatives that need to be concentrated on this week and maybe next week. Would you actually urge the powers that be at uh, NZME or the News Talk station to sort of reach out to those hosts who are airing that sort of stuff and say just pull it back because it's actually clashing with what's in the news bulletins and the listener generated feedback they're also airing which is also useful intelligence about petrol stations that are opening and relief centres and so on they, they could play a very useful role in telling their listeners look Control your your baser instincts for the moment, and and concentrate on things that'll that'll help people. If you've got information that can help people, let's hear about that. That's Gavin Ellis, former editor in chief at the New Zealand Herald, who said, "Thank God for news media in a storm this week." In his column, The Nightly Views, which is actually a weekly column, which you'll find online at nightlyviews. That's nightly with a k. dot com. So, once this crisis passes its peak, what will editors take from this, the second deadly and extreme inundation of the Upper North Island, in little more than a fortnight? I asked Richard Sutherland, formerly a TV news chief at News Hub and TV3, and TVNZ and Sky News, but now head of news at RNZ. Everyone was super aware or you know, um, super sensitive around the way that the Auckland flooding late last month played out, and no one wanted a repeat of that. And it was interesting that... All the official agencies, uh, you know, Met Service, uh, NEMA, Auckland Council, well in advance of Gabriel 
making landfall were putting out these warnings, I think there was a lot more work done in advance to make sure that the country was aware that it was coming. Certainly, I think initially the view was this is going to be bad news for Auckland because Auckland is already very badly damaged and waterlogged. But as it turned out, of course, it ended up being Northland, Coromandel, uh, Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, those areas that copped the worst of it, which is not to say that there hasn't been some damage caused to the Greater Auckland region by this, but certainly I think the worst damage is, is further down country. But last time, around the anniversary weekend, the deluge and floods in Auckland, there was angst about the declaration of emergency and, and the communication of that. As the leader of a news operation, does that make an awful lot of difference? I mean, once an emergency is declared, whether it's a nationwide one or not, uh, does that change? Is there a button that gets pushed that says you do certain things, leading an outfit like RNZ News and their response? We, we tend to make our own sort of de facto declarations of emergency as we see these things coming down the pipeline. Uh, look, uh, I'm, I'm sure that for official reasons and for logistical reasons, there are very good reasons for official declarations of emergency, but in my experience, journalists don't wait for the official word that something is bad. We know very early on that it's going bad and, and and react accordingly. A fair number of journalists in and around Auckland and the various newsrooms, the media organisations there, but that's not the case for all these parts that have been hit. For example, Gisborne, I mean, there is not a bureau for any of the, I think, the major news organisations like Stuff or NZME, they don't have publications there. RNZ doesn't have a permanent office or bureau, hasn't had for a lot of years. Maybe a reporter for the local democracy reporting service. But mm. when this happens, do you have a feeling that we have, when this hits, are you thinking, well, I wish we had more people in these places that are important? I've never worked for an organisation, for a newsroom that didn't need one extra person in, in, in another part of the country. You know, there's always that demand for resource. I think what this incident has shown us is that with the increasing impact of climate change, news organisations, particularly public service, lifeline utility organisations like RNZ, we are going to have to have a look at our geographic coverage as well as our general coverage based on population. So, for example, it's, it's, it's easy to say, yeah, we're going to have big newsrooms in Auckland and Wellington and sizable uh, operations in places like Christchurch. What's happened over the years, you know, for a number of reasons, a lot of them financial, you know, all news organisations have contracted and you contract to your home city or you contract to a big metropolitan area because that's where the population is and that's where the bulk of your audience is. But this cyclone has, I think, reminded us all as a nation that it's really important to have reporters in the regions, to have strong infrastructure in the, re in the regions. And, and I would argue that Radio New Zealand or RNZ is a, is a key piece of infrastructure and we are already drawing up plans for certainly extra boots on the ground permanently in that part of the world. But also we need to think, OK, well, we need to think about where is the next uh, Hawke's Bay or the next Gisborne? You know, are there other regions that we need to have more people in so that we can respond faster to these sorts of things? Uh, at the end of the day, it all comes down to money, what we need, where we need it, and then how are we going to pay for it? Over the last 12, 
years or so, lots of these major emergencies for which the media had to respond with rolling coverage on radio, television and online. I guess modern communications, digital technology and equipment makes it possible to get in and out and report from places and get information. We we don't necessarily have an office or a, a dedicated journalist, but when that stuff fails, that's what's happened this past week. And we've seen places with literally no power, so when the cell phone towers either go down or the batteries run out, does that change the way you report the news? Like, for example, did RNZ kind of pivot to providing information knowing that there were people who'd be listening to battery-powered radios and that would be all they'd be getting? Yes, it's interesting you say that because I think one of the reasons why most news organisations over the last 20 years or so as they reacted to dropping funding would look to the increased productivity gains from technology and go, well, it's okay, we can have fewer people because we can do more with less using the technology that we've got. The internet has changed the way that we report and I think that that's all great but when the technology doesn't work, you're stuffed. And I think that this has been a a huge wake-up call to all of us that we need to have redundancy in place to an extent that we probably didn't think we needed to. And that doesn't go just for broadcasters or news organisations. I think it goes for every piece of infrastructure. You know, um, the cell phone companies are going to have to think about how they do things. Um, You know, um, lines companies are going to have to think about how they prepare for these sort of things. And, uh, you know, it's going to mean we're going to have to spend a lot more money on resilience and redundancy of systems. Um, As a nation, as a society, not just the news media, but but that's certainly something we'll have to look at very closely. But in, in terms of news gathering and news presentation, interesting things like, for example... RNZ's online updates going text only because yes. knowing that yeah. if people had any online capability at all, it's likely to be 3G crawling on old fashioned dial up, no room for the, the graphics and all of that that would slow it down. Yeah, it's certainly been a reminder, perhaps to generations who have not been brought up with transistor radios, that a transistor radio is actually something quite important to have in a disaster. And I think that what you'll find is that this will. Uh, sharpen the minds of, of people on just how important, um, and I'm going to use a horrible term here, legacy platforms like AM transmission are in civil defence emergencies like the one that we've had. I mean, God forbid we have anything like this again anytime soon, but certainly I think we should pre- work on the assumption that there will be something like this, and we do need to be prepared for it. And good old-fashioned radio, uh, and we saw this uh, to, a, to a lesser extent with the Tonga volcano, you know, Tonga was cut off from the internet. There were no comms in there. The only thing that was getting through was shortwave radio. Now, you know, in twenty in the twenty twenties, here we are talking about shortwave radio, something that's been around since the early nineteen hundreds, and uh, still still doing the mahi. And uh, same thing with AM transmission. I think in this country, we are going to need to think very carefully about how we provide the belt and braces in terms of broadcasting infrastructure for for this country as a result of this. Well, if I put you in the position of saying, let's say there's going to be another major emergency in the in the near future, just as you've had, you know, two within a uh, a month. Um, if that happens, is the feeling like okay, we've had lots of practice now uh, from Pike River onwards, Christchurch quakes, March fifteenth, Fakati White Island, all those things that have happened in the last twelve, thirteen years. It's okay, we got this, we know what to do. Or are we thinking? we can't do this again, that, you know, the the well of this reservoir of people and of activity and money and all of it that it takes is drying up? 
We want to be careful that we don't suffer from recency bias. You know, history is full of disasters. Uh, it's how we choose to, to cover it and how we approach it that's important. And we have the tools now in, in the last few decades or the last hundred years or so, we have mass media, which we didn't have up until quite recently in terms of civilization terms. There's always been bad stuff happening. There's always been significant events happening. There's always been disasters. It's just that we haven't always had the tools with which we could communicate to everyone about what is happening. There's always going to be something around the corner that's going to happen that's going to require a significant amount of coverage. If something like this happened again next week, would we cover it? And how would we be able to cover it? We would cover it. We would find the, we would find the resource because that's why we're here. And I'm not just talking about RNZ here. I'm talking about all news organisations. This is our bread and butter and this is why we're here. But none of our news organisations are huge. If I take you know, TVNZ, NewsHub, any of them, they don't have a whole lot of surplus stuff. And broadcasting live, continuous rolling, reliable coverage is exhausting, particularly television with the visual element even more so. Uh, there must be a limit to the number of times where... Uh, news organisations, you know, that aren't huge in scale, and we don't have a joined-up big public media entity, and we're not going to have one that's uh, covering all uh, all the major media. Um, yeah, there must be a limit at some point to just just how many of these things you could do at the the, the sort of quality and uh, and level of intensity that they seem to demand. Yeah, it, it, it does depend on the platform. For example, if, if I look at RNZ National, I mean the news output availability just on a normal day-to-day basis across RNZ National, there is always something there that we can rely on. And it's just a simple matter of, okay, well, for example, you know, if I look at um, a typical schedule for RNZ National, you know, we've got hourly bulletins 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, whether there's a disaster or not, we're doing that. We've got first up, we've got morning report, we've got midday report, uh, you know, checkpoint. We've got lately, we've got nine to noon. There's all, we've always got something that we can quickly get stuff onto in the event of an emergency. It's different for other organisations. Working in commercial television, I know that it's it's harder when you have fewer regular bulletins, but they do it and and, and they do a great job. So I, I, it depends on the platform. And, of course, obviously there's digital as well, which is always on. Different organisations can maintain a level of intensity for longer simply because that's the way that they are set up to operate. And just for finally and briefly, has there been any element of uh, pooling or tech sharing or anything between um, the media companies? Because given that, you know, they'll all be trying to cover what's happened in Wairoa, which has been cut off, for example, or, or Gisborne Tairawhiti. In the initial um, response to Cyclone Gabriel, I think everyone just gets on and helps each other. Um, RNZ has relied quite heavily on um, live streaming of various press conferences, uh, courtesy of our friends over at TVNZ. We have helped out News Hub with communications, uh, particularly out of Gisborne from time to time, particularly in the early stages, shared uh, the cost of charter flights with other news organisations. Certainly, there's a lot of goodwill amongst the New Zealand media towards each other in in a crisis. Um, While we are fiercely competitive always we are also human beings and we understand that from time to time you've got to help your brother and sister out and so I've been really pleased with the level of cooperation between the various media organisations over this crisis. And will you have an opportunity Richard to get together with them and you think discuss some of these things that you know as you said there are things to to consider now about how you know, we, we cover these things, geographic issues, climate, all of that. Do you think any of that will be discussed between yourself and your peers at other media organisations in any kind of structured way? Casually, there will be conversations. I think that 
but I think that we are at a moment in time where we could actually do something a bit more formal around building a more robust media infrastructure, particularly in regional New Zealand, but also for the whole country. I would be very, very keen for the industry to get together and, and thrash out a way to make sure that the whole country can benefit from the combined resources that we all have. Again, everything comes down to money, but if the need is there, the money will be found. RNZ's Head of News, Richard Sutherland. And we'll see, now that the public media entity plan is off the table, if those with the public purse strings see that need for news in quite the same way. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend on Media Watch, but we'll be back with more on the media next Wednesday night after the 10pm news during nights, talking to Karen Hay with Midweek Media Watch. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.